When I turn on this microphone, I need to have conviction. So I now understand why Sigmund Bloom, the fantasy philosopher of this generation, constantly preaches that it's therapeutic to talk about fantasy football. This microphone forces its speaker to find her or his truth. It's my responsibility to those listening that I actually believe the words that are coming out of my mouth. Do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? Never have I devoted so much time and attention to figuring out what is it that I actually believe? And it's not as easy as you think. I don't just produce fantasy content. Naturally, I'm also a consumer, subconsciously subject to the powerful current of consensus. Every Dynasty Rankings website more or less ranks its players in the same order as any other website, especially without confirmation of games being played. And opinions, right or wrong, are largely homogeneous. And there are too many instances where, as a consumer, generally accepted positions instinctively just don't sit well with me. But speaking into this microphone has forced me away Away from intuition and toward evidence. Being contrarian takes fortitude because diversity of thought is discouraged in football and fantasy football just as it is anywhere else. Contrarian takes are shunned or cast as clickbait. Just for example, back in January, Benjamin Solik of the Draft Network tweeted an article identifying his top 10 wide receivers in the 2020 class. That list didn't include former Clemson wide receiver and Bengals draftee T. Higgins. The general reception of the article was to criticize Solik for failing to include him. Is it really that far-fetched that a contested catch wide receiver who runs a 4-6-40 and who relies on size and leaping ability may not be able to win the same way at the next level? Hello? Have we already forgotten to kill Harry? Have we already forgotten J.J. Arcega-Whiteside? Harry was a better prospect than Higgins by every perceivable objective measure. And no particular prospect was entitled to top 10 status in what was generally considered the best wide receiver class since 2014. Consensus is boring at best and dangerous at worst. The last few years in fantasy football have been littered with bad consensus fantasy takes. If he was getting drafted, Josh Allen was falling to the final rounds of dynasty rookie drafts, even in super flex leagues. In 2017, Corey Davis was the consensus wide receiver one. In hindsight, that title belonged to Chris Godwin with Kenny Galladay coming in close second. Just last year, Dave Gettleman was thoroughly mocked for taking Daniel Jones at number six overall. Ben Jones finished 13th in passing touchdowns and 12th in throws requiring exceptional skill, according to Player Profiler's money throws metric. Jones also showed real promise as a fantasy asset, finishing as the QB1 in weeks 8 and 16 and as the QB2 in weeks 3 and 10. In an April 26, 2019 article, the ringer's Robert Mays called the decision to select Jones, quote, baffling stating that at Duke, Jones showed accuracy on intermediate throws and attempts to the underneath areas of the field, but nothing else made him seem worthy of a top 10 pick. One year into his career, Jones looks like he belongs. If he can clean up the turnover-worthy plays, then Dave Gettleman's naysayers will truly look silly. Football should be the easiest place to have the courage to be bold because absolutely, absolutely everyone in the sport is guessing. From coaches, to the fans, to fake scouts, to real scouts, to fantasy analysts, to the actual players themselves. Everyone is guessing based on whatever factors the individual subjectively believes to be the most weighty. Mitchell Trubisky isn't drafted ahead of Patrick Mahomes if Ryan Pace isn't guessing. The Cardinals guessed in 2018 that Josh Rosen was the right pick over Lamar Jackson. Pete Carroll throwing the ball at the one-yard line was a bad guess. 
Malcolm Butler's decision to jump that route was a better guess. And it's a sport where 11 people have to be on the same page for things to work out. It's played with an oblong ball that bounces in unpredictable directions. The only thing that any of us can do in predicting outcomes is to have conviction based on our experience, training, and observation. So with the 2020 season approaching, I felt it necessary to dedicate a show to some of my convictions pertaining to the upcoming season. LaVisca Chenault is not a wide receiver. Chenault is the classic example of the tragic hero in literature. He is an otherwise virtuous character beset by a single fatal flaw. At 6'1", 230 pounds, Chenault is the package of brute strength and elusiveness rivaled in the 2020 class only by Jonathan Taylor. But his usage while at Colorado is a red flag, and I cannot determine whether it was due solely to the offensive scheme, Chenault's limitations as a player, or a combination of both. At Colorado, Chenault was rarely deployed down the field, relying heavily on manufactured touches at or near the line of scrimmage, like hitches, drags, jet sweeps, screens, and both stop routes and two-step slants when a cornerback was playing off coverage. For example, in four of his best games as a sophomore in 2018, Chenault compiled an impressive 682 yards from scrimmage against Colorado State, Nebraska, UCLA, and Arizona State. This includes 641 yards receiving on 40 catches and 41 yards rushing on 13 attempts. Of Chenault's catches in those four games, 27, or 64%, were manufactured, coming behind or within three yards of the line of scrimmage. In a sample of games from his senior season in 2019 against Nebraska, Oregon, Air Force, and USC, 58% of Chenault's involvements, including targets and rushes, were of the short and simple variety. Screens, one- and two-step slants, hitches, stop routes, quarterback dives. Particularly telling was Chenault's game against Oregon, where he showed frustration with the more physical play of Oregon's cornerbacks pressing him. Colorado actually attempted to get Chenault involved down the field in this game, but he was unable to separate himself from the corners, with one of those vertical targets resulting in an interception. And while the Colorado coaches showed a targeted interest in getting the ball in Chenault's hands, that interest curiously stopped when it came to punt and kick returns. Chenault has one career kick return in three years and no zero career punt returns. Now, let that sink in for a moment. Chenault is six foot one, 230 pounds, and he is an athletic beast of a specimen for the wide receiver position. Supposedly, he was the best athlete on the team, yet he has one career kick return and zero career punt returns? Yes, Chenault is elusive once the ball is in his hands, but tackle-breaking ability is a boon to running backs because the volume of touches a running back receives during the course of a game. Generally, a wide receiver's value is derived from touchdowns and getting chunk plays as a result of being deployed down the field tackle-breaking ability would matter less for a wide receiver who receives five or six catches at an average depth of four or five yards down the field. For the Jaguars, and to return a value in fantasy, Chenault must either develop the skills to be deployed in the vertical passing game or be a focus of the offense with 120 or 130-plus targets in the short passing game. The closest recent comparisons that I can think of for a player being used in a similar fashion to how Chenault was used in Colorado is how Jarvis Landry was used in Miami or how Golden Tate was used in Detroit. In both instances, those offenses used Tate and Landry to minimize risk and increase the completion percentages of Matthew Stafford and Ryan Tannehill respectively. So perhaps all is not lost for Chenault, but I'm skeptical that his skills are transferable to playing wide receiver in the NFL.
he plays 16 games, John Ross is a wide receiver one. You don't have to squint too hard to see this becoming a reality. Ross was a wide receiver one through four weeks last season before he was sidelined with an injury for the next 10 weeks. The former Washington cornerback almost gets disregarded for his speed, cast as a one-trick pony. But like Tyreek Hill before him and both Marquise Brown and Tutu Atwell after, John Ross pairs tremendous speed with an equally uncanny ability to change direction and create separation. Why else would Ross be consistently used in the red zone despite being 5'11", 194 pounds? In 2018, in 13 games played, John Ross was 8th in the league in targets within the 10-yard line with 7. He converted 6 of those for touchdowns, evoking memories of Antonio Brown and Marvin Harrison's goal line usage. In his early 2019 action, Bengals head coach Zach Taylor showed a willingness to diversify Ross's involvement in the offense and not simply resolving to sending Ross down the sideline on go routes and posts. Taylor used Ross on screens and over routes and deep hitches to get the ball into the hands of the Bengals' biggest, albeit inconsistent, playmaker while also taking advantage of the space defenses are forced to give Ross in deference to his speed. The Bengals were sixth last season in passing attempts. Joe Burrow should theoretically be an upgrade over Andy Dalton. Therefore, the only thing preventing John Ross from finally having a breakout year is remaining on the field and his hands. He needs to be able to catch the ball better. Ryan Nall is a league winner. That's a bold claim for a player with two career rushes. The 2018 undrafted free agent hung on to the Bears practice squad in his rookie season and through half of the 2019 season. Even though he was elevated to the active roster in week eight of last year, he was never given an opportunity in the offense. And that's likely because Nall is so relatively raw in his development. He was recruited to Oregon State as a linebacker, but injuries led him to switch to the offensive side of the ball. Now at Oregon State in 2016, Nall finished the season with an elusive rating of 160.9, which led all FBS running backs with 90 or more attempts. Now then Washington State head coach Mike Leach summed it up best saying, quote, we got a lot of great running backs in this conference. I actually think the fellow at Oregon State is the best one in the conference. First of all, he's big. Second of all, he's faster than you think. Third of all, he's very elusive. The other thing is the guy catches the ball really well. What stands out about Ryan Nall is that he pairs elusiveness and speed in a 6'2", 230-pound package. This is a big boy who was productive in college. He has an 86th percentile college dominator rating. He had collegiate seasons with 22 and 27 receptions, and he had a 6 yards per carry average on 385 career carries at Oregon State. Nall was such a versatile athlete that he was considered as having the potential of playing tight end or an H-back role in the NFL. While he's yet to receive the opportunity in the NFL's regular season, in the 2018 preseason, Nall was second to Chris Warren in rushing yardage, again showing breakaway speed and patience in the running game. In 2019, he was 13th with the third highest yards per carry average. In his preseason opportunities, Nall has consistently showed the same athleticism and skill that he did in college, outrunning defenders half his size. And now, with David Montgomery's groin injury costing him an estimated two to four weeks, it looks as though the Bears will be forced to give Nall a look at least in the first few weeks of the season. If Nall, a Bears fan favorite, does get the opportunity, don't be surprised if he makes it difficult for the Bears to give the spot back to Montgomery. Scotty Miller is the wide receiver three in Tampa Bay and one of the better wide receiver threes in the NFL. I covered this in the outtakes of the first episode of this show, but it's come to my attention that the conversation warranted a more thorough discussion. 
Now, the fact that I even have to say this is somewhat silly, but there are those fantasy analysts who are still touting Justin Watson. This despite the fact that Miller eclipsed Watson's two-year career receiving yardage totals in just 10 games played. This despite the fact that between weeks 3 and 12 last season, Miller was deployed on 26% of the Bucks' offensive snaps, while during the same period, Watson averaged just 3.3% of snaps. As a rookie, Scotty Miller surpassed Justin Watson on the Buccaneers' depth chart despite missing a majority of training camp in the preseason with a hamstring injury. Watson was drafted by Dirk Cutter's Buccaneers, the previous regime. Miller was drafted by Bruce Arians with visions of Miller becoming the next John Brown. And like John Brown, Scotty Miller will be the fastest person on the field in most weeks that the Bucks are playing. Miller has a non-existent ADP on most platforms, including MFL. And for that reason, he is easily one of the best values to have on the end of your rosters. Scotty Miller checks all the boxes of a player who should be stashed at the end of Dynasty rosters, and he should be rostered in all best ball leagues. Early breakout age, check. He broke out his sophomore year. College dominator, check, 84th percentile. Opportunity, check. Look for Bruce Arians and Byron Leftwich to isolate Miller on one side of the field opposite Chris Godwin and Mike Evans in order to make a defense show its hand early in the snap count. Miller's speed and ability to take the top off of a defense must be respected just as much as anyone else's on the Bucks roster. So defenses are going to be forced to show their hand and whether they'll respect Miller's speed with a two-deep shell. Now look for Tom Brady to take advantage when defenses attempt to guard Miller one-on-one. Brian Edwards is the wide receiver one in the 2020 class. It's a take soaked in hindsight bias and confirmation from the early reports from training camp from Raiders beat reporters. But what is it that separated Edwards from the consensus top wide receivers in CeeDee Lamb and Jerry Judy? Was it the college dominator rating? No. Edwards exceeded both Judy and Lamb with a 94th percentile college dominator in comparison to Judy's 35th percentile score in Lamb's 76. Maybe it's the college target share. No. Edwards had a 25.5% college target share in comparison to Lamb's 24. 7% share and Judy's 25.1% share. And we know it isn't the breakout age because Edwards posted the best breakout age ever at 17.8. Just for context, that means when Edwards was a freshman in college and that day came during training camp where everyone has to sign the NCAA likeness and image release, Edwards had to send his release to his parents to be signed because he wasn't able to sign for himself as a minor yet. No, the only difference between Edwards, Lamb, and Judy was Tuatanga Vialoa, Baker Mayfield, and Kyler Murray. While Lamb and Judy were catching passes from eventual top five NFL draft picks. Edwards was commanding double teams and catching passes from Jake Bentley, Michael Sarnecchia, and freshman quarterback Ryan Helsinki. Edwards is a true X boundary wide receiver. He's able to make catches while taking contact. He's physical after the catch. He can elevate and make the contested catch. He does things that remind me of DeAndre Hopkins.
Logan Woodside is the backup quarterback to watch in 2020. Woodside, the current Titans backup, is the Mid-American Conference's record holder for passer rating and yards per attempt. He's fifth in the conference's history in touchdown passes. Woodside is a former Bengals seventh-round pick and an AAF alum. Look, the Titans are a team with playoff aspirations with Derrick Henry on a newly signed contract and A.J. Brown in the fold for year two. Ryan Tannehill missed the 2017 season with an ACL injury. He missed five games in 2018 with a shoulder injury. Despite their playoff aspirations, the Titans did not sign a backup quarterback of any consequence, showing faith in both Tannehill and Woodside. Now, Woodside was the orchestrator of an explosive Toledo Rockets offense featuring Kareem Hunt, Deontay Johnson, and John V.A. Johnson. If something happens to Tannehill, Woodson has the talent at least to be the next Matt Flynn. That is our show for tonight. Apologies to Matt Kelly. We ran out of time. We'll get him rescheduled soon. And that is the Sharp Review for this, the 10,465th day since the Detroit Lions last won a playoff game. 28 years, 7 months, and 25 days to the date. In Los Angeles, I'm Felix Sharp. Good night and good luck. If you like this podcast, I am offering nominal bribes for five-star ratings and reviews on iTunes. I'm looking at a Michael Vick rookie card, a John Elway, a John Elway tops, a John Elway holographics card from Upper Deck, a Donovan, a Donovan McNabb rookie card, a Charles Woodson rookie card, a Bart Starr Ice Bowl card from Tops, and a Randy Moss 1999 Excalibur card from, I don't even know where that's from. So, so I'm giving away these cards for five-star ratings and reviews on iTunes. The first six reviews, just shoot me a DM on Twitter, at SharpReview. Or send me an email at fhsharp at gmail.com and I'll get you one of these cards. Now, the other take that I was going, going to include that I didn't was about Eric Bieniemy and him not getting a, a head coaching job last offseason. Eric Bieniemy is at the helm of a record-setting offense in Kansas City, and it, it's just baffling to me that he didn't get a job last year. Now, the head coaches last year who got NFL jobs without head coaching experience were Kevin Stefanski, Joe Judge, and Matt Rule. And Eric Bieniemy has been coaching longer than all of those guys, with the exception of Rule, who was started coaching in, 90, in 1998, and Eric Bieniemy uh, didn't start coaching in, until 2001. But that's because in 1998, Eric Bieniemy Eric was still playing in the NFL. It's it's just absolutely ridiculous to me that Bieniemy was not hired as a head coach somewhere last season. But I think that he absolutely will be this next season. Now, one editorial note here to close out the show. When I was talking about Scotty Miller and him being lined up on the opposite side of Mike Evans and Chris Godwin, I referenced the snap count that the defense would have to show its hands late in the snap count. I meant the pl- the play clock. So, and as football fans know, a defense attempts to disguise its coverage to the very last minute, late in the play clock. So the quarterback doesn't know what coverage is 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 being played. And so it's my belief that with Miller on one side and him being a deep a deep threat himself, that if if a defense is going to play 
a too high look, then they're going to have to show that look earlier than they would if there wasn't a deep threat on that side. Does that make sense? So I just wanted to include that editorial note. With that, I'll see you all next week.